Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Tuesday, June twentieth, two 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Gordon Bernard, M.D., and getting his thoughts on the recently released Fluid and Catheter Treatment Trial, or FACT trial. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May and in June of 2006, and uh, please see the website and the show notes for the specific references. The Society of Critical Care Medicine is dedicated to translating research to the bedside, especially when dealing with diseases common to the intensive care unit, such as the acute respiratory distress syndrome. Dr. Bernard serves as the steering committee chairman for ARDSNET, the group that published this important study, and we're delighted that he's agreed to share his insights with us on this important topic. Dr. Bernard is the Melinda Owen Bass Professor of Pulmonary Medicine, Assistant Vice Chancellor for Research, and Director of the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. And this is his second visit to the SCCM podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Bernard. Thank you. So, um, as I was saying to you before, this is um, uh, personally my most complicated podcast, but I'm very excited about this opportunity. And to try and summarize very briefly the big take-home points that I gleaned from these articles for the listeners, these were this was the FACT trial. It was patients with acute lung injury and ARDS randomized in a, a factorial fashion to either PA catheter or no, and then a conservative fluid management or a liberal fluid management, and you're going to discuss some of the details of that. The, the big picture was that the use of the PA catheter certainly didn't appear to be associated with any enhancement in outcomes. And then, interestingly, on the fluid management... It appeared from this study that the conservative group, the group where they were targeting a central venous pressure less than four for the CVP group, and in those patients, if they could get them to there with a good urine output and no evidence of cardiogenic dysfunction, although there was no improvement in overall mortality, there did appear to be positive signal in terms of decrease in length of stay in the ICU, decrease in time on the ventilator, and some improvement in some physiologic variables. So I know I've just tried to summarize like four or five years worth of work in in a sentence, but uh, I thought that would be a starting point. Oh, that's good. Um, And then I thought uh, for discussion purposes, why didn't we uh, start out by having you talk a little bit about the background of the design of this study? And I I know that uh, in terms of you and I have discussed before the challenges of this, but uh, just from looking, if 11,000 patients had to be screened to get 1,000 into it, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the study was designed. By by way of background, our interest, the ARDSNET interest in uh, in studying the PA catheter uh, really dates back to a uh, session with the um, 
American College of Chess Physicians, Society of Critical Care Medicine, the NIH, and the FDA to look at the issue of safety of the PA catheter. And this, this conference was uh, held, uh, I believe, in about 1993 or 94, uh, with was published in JAMA. The results of this uh, sort of consensus conference was published in JAMA in uh, 1995. One of the recommendations was that the PA catheter be studied prospectively in patients with sepsis and or acute lung injury. And there were other recommendations related to heart failure and some other categories where the PA catheter might be useful. Uh, but of course, our interest was in uh, ARDS. And so the, uh, the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute uh, decided uh, based on that recommendation to provide additional funding to the ARDSnet to conduct this particular study. We spent uh, probably a year to a year and a half minimum working out the details of this rather complex trial uh, so that we were confident that it could be carried out successfully and safely uh, in critically ill patients. The trial, uh, the, the actual conduct of the trial, was made more complicated than usual because we required standardization of the mechanical ventilator uh, along ARDSnet protocol guidelines, uh, as well as now taking over management of the fluid administration for the patient and the type of monitoring system for the patient, being the PA catheter or the central venous catheter. As a result, our screening uh, activities were uh, rather extensive and we screened uh, almost 11,000 patients to uh, to be able to garner the 1,001 patients that were actually enrolled in the study. It, it, it is interesting to put that in context that in most sepsis and ARDS trials that I've been involved with, the ratio of a screen to enroll is almost always around 9 or 10 to 1. So this is not all that unusual. It's just that the reasons in this study, the reasons for not including patients in this study were different than others, and it related to such things as the a PA catheter already being present, the uh, <clears throat> investigator feeling like they couldn't adhere to one or the other of the study arms with regard to fluid management, or they, in, in some minor cases, they couldn't adhere to the ventilator protocol. It's hard to discuss this uh, as, an, as an outsider looking at this because they do seem to be intertwined, that, that the approaches for the PA catheter and the central venous catheter were, were similar but not identical, that the PA catheter group was aiming more for looking at the uh, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure versus the CVP. And so the idea would be if the PA catheter were effective, you'd either be able to attain your goals more rapidly or more effectively, or maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, potential uh, advantages that might have been seen. Yes, well, in our thinking about designing the trial, we really wanted to distinguish ourselves from other studies where the only intervention was randomization to a PA catheter versus central venous catheter monitoring. Uh, we felt that those studies were probably important and, and provided some useful information, but the catheter itself doesn't do anything. It's not like randomizing a patient to steroids or placebo. Uh, here, the catheter can only provide information. So then the study question becomes, what do you do with that information? Do you just put the catheter in and let the information get printed out and you ignore it, or do you actually employ that information in managing the patient? And so our study involved this protocol. Now, we could have chosen... Uh, one single protocol that uh, we said, okay, we're going to drive your hemodynamic management by this protocol, either with a CVP or a, or a, a PA catheter, and that we would hypothesize that the additional information afforded by the PA catheter may allow us to fine-tune your hemodynamic situation more uh, tightly, uh, and that might provide a benefit to the patient. 
but in our discussions, we, we decided we had this other burning question, which was, is, fluid, is the amount of fluid these patients have on board important? And after all, we are talking about non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and that relates or could relate very directly to how much excess fluid is on board. So that's why we decided to try to answer these questions at the same time. So another way of looking at the study question, it could be we're going to study fluid conservative versus fluid liberal, and we're going to try to answer another question, how best to do that, do it with a PA catheter or a CVP. Why don't you sort of um, talk for a few minutes uh, about some of the results of the PA catheter part of this study and, and share that with the listeners? Well, uh, the PA part of the PA catheter part of the study uh, was largely to try to uh, understand whether the PA catheter improved outcome or perhaps made it worse, as suggested by the Connors article published in the mid '90s. And so, we found that there was no difference at all in uh, mortality, ICU length of stay, ventilator uh, utilization, uh, or any other clinically important variable uh, with PA catheter versus central venous catheter as your primary monitoring tool. Uh, we did notice that the patients who had the PA catheter uh, stayed in the unit 0.2 days longer. Now, that sounds ridiculously small, but um, it is statistically significant, and it probably is real that if a catheter is in place, there's some time delay related to getting that catheter removed so the patient can leave the ICU. So that may actually be true, even if it's only a few hours. It, it, it's, it's a definite finding. The other one that we don't have any explanation for uh, at least none that we could tell from the study data, was that the patients who received a pulmonary artery catheter uh, had an increased need for blood transfusions, 38% versus 30% in the CVP arm of the study. And um, that's not a trivial difference in uh, total uh, percentage being transfused, and it may have implications if you go back to the Paul A. Bear study of transfusion requirements and transfusion triggers in the ICU. So those are our two main findings. Um, we, we also found adverse events associated with the use of the PA catheter. Uh, and as you might expect, predominantly, these were cardiac-related, uh, cardiac rhythm-related uh, adverse events, although none were fatal. Uh, there were, there were, there were uh, episodes of ventricular tachycardia and, and atrial tachycardia observed. There was a sizable number of patients that met criteria to enter into the study meaning non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, but then when their wedge pressure was measured, it was elevated, meaning greater than 18. And, uh, but, uh, you know, this uh, professor I was speaking with said, well, the, those were still patients with ARDS, and there was just some interesting results there, and I wanted you to, uh, to comment on that if you could. Yes. You know, I, I've been studying ARDS uh, since 1979 or 80 in multicenter randomized trials, and in 19... Oh, 1979, when we were designing the methylprednisolone and ARDS clinical trial that was ultimately published in the New England Journal of Medicine, we felt that we at, had to obligatorily obtain wedge pressure readings in our patients to confirm and prove that they were non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And, and in that study, the cutoff was 18 or less millimeters of mercury for the wedge pressure. And that was how insecure we were with our clinical diagnosis, and, and, you know, you had to almost be there. But we were coming off of a, a decade where there was a lot of argument about cardiogenic edema, non-cardiogenic edema, how real was this phenomenon, because everybody was used to cardiogenic edema, but non-cardiogenic was just showing up on the scene because we just, for the first time, had large populations in intensive care units with this problem. So we were kind of self-conscious about that and, and required that, that reading. If you 
Now, fast forward to the 90s and, and to now, our bedside clinical diagnosis is pretty good. And in fact, this study actually, in my mind, confirms this because the 18, the wedge pressure of 18 is a rather arbitrary cutoff. Right, right. And so if you look at our patients, 75% of them had a wedge pressure less than 18 right. uh, or 18 or less when they were enrolled in this trial. And of course, they were enrolled with the presumption that this was non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So that leaves that other 25 that that had pressures above that. The fundamental biology is that patients can have increased leaky capillary pulmonary edema and yet may have, for multiple reasons, elevated pulmonary capillary wedge pressures. That's right. They can coexist. And the what was reassuring was that if you look at a frequency distribution of wedge pressures, uh, those pressures above 18, those, those patients above 18 were, were not very common, and they tended to cluster between 18 and 22. Right. So they weren't really like 35 of the kind of numbers that we would see in congestive heart failure with pulmonary edema. So to sort of uh, conclude, and I don't, I don't want to over or understate the science or the results and the science, is it appears from this study that it appears to be safe to manage your patient with non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema without a pulmonary artery catheter. And from this study, there was no obvious benefit to using one from a fluid management standpoint. Is that a reasonable statement? That's exactly correct. And we, uh, we have uh, on underway a cost-effectiveness analysis. And, of course, there's no effectiveness. So uh, what we'll really be showing is what, it, what the additional costs are associated with using PA catheters. So to go to the, um, the next part of it, which I believe does have direct clinical implication, the way I wanted to start out and then uh, let you discuss is I was just going to sort of t- take uh, mentally go through, like for the central venous catheter conservative algorithm, what you did for a patient um, and then tell me if I get it right and then sort of make comments is that basically you started out by measuring the central venous pressure. If the patient was in shock, then the clinician could do uh, what needed to be done, right? Right. in terms of vasopressors and fluids. And then in the next part of the diagram, if the mean arterial pressure was greater than or equal to 60 and the patient was not on vasopressors, then the next thing you looked at was their urine output. And if they had a low urine output, then the question was, was there evidence of, from what I can gather, you, you have here ineffective versus effective circulation, meaning cardiogenic dysfunction, I would imagine. Right. Correct? Uh-huh. And then the, the basic goal was that if you could get the patient with a good urine output and there was no cardiogenic dysfunction, you were diuresing them basically down to a CVP of less than four. That's correct. And that was the target. It's important to recognize that we frequently did not reach that target, but that that was the target. And that I, I thought I remember in the paper that the majority of patients, though, were in these boxes towards the, the right-hand side of the diagram, meaning that they were having good urine output and effective circulation? Or? That's right. So they, they tended to either be in shock or they were on the right side, which was, meant they had effective circulation, effective urine output, effective blood pressure. And now we were just into the phase of what we call the experiment, that is, driving them to a, a, two different uh, target wedge pressure or CVP pressures. Were there patients where they were sort of in shock the whole time and you weren't able to, to measure anything, or did that not happen as a, as a problem? Uh, that did happen. Uh, there were certainly patients who came into the trial and died while still on pressors. And then comparing that with the CVC liberal group, that same box, that target, is a central venous pressure of 10 to 14. 
I, I guess one of the questions is, and you mentioned this in the in the discussion of the article, in terms of uh, what would be considered a, a standard of care, because we don't you we you wanted to try and avoid some of the controversies that came out after the results of the uh, initial ARDSnet trial with low versus high tidal volume, right? Right. That would be a question. You know, what is the standard of care? And so what we we did was we just took uh, a variety of sources for what a normal CVP is and uh, tried to divide that range up uh, so that we had uh, some separation between the two groups. And we did the same for pulmonary artery catheter uh, wedge pressure. And uh, it was for seven days? Was, was that the idea? That was the idea. If they were on mechanical ventilation uh, for the seven days, they would have this protocol administered for that full seven days. And one of the things I read was that the uh, the time between when patients came in and when they were started in your study uh, seemed to be a, a little longer. Now, this is different from sort of an early sepsis trial where every second matters, or do you want to talk about that? Was that something you were happy with or would do differently? Uh, we were happy with that. We, uh, we have used a 48-hour window in most of our trials. Um, and uh, we end up with an average in, uh, of 20 to 25 hours between onset of ARDS and actual entry into the trial. And uh, part of that window is taken up just by the, the bedside team recognizing the patient has ARDS. So they might notice that the oxygenation has gotten worse, but if they don't get a chest X-ray, we can't really detect uh, you know that, that ARDS is present. So um, that, that's one of the drivers is just getting the appropriate test to evaluate the patient. Before we get into the to the results, you know, I was discussing this again with some other intensivists, and they say, well, sure, you know, we've been uh, supposed to be drying out our patients with ARDS. We've known that for years, and why don't you comment on that kind of a statement for a study like this? Well, you know, in every study I've ever done, when you when you when the results are out, there are a cadre of people who say something like, uh, "I always did it that way, so what's new?" Uh, or "We always knew that wouldn't work, and what's new?" And what I would offer there really is that there were certainly uh, uh, teaching people teaching keeping the patient dry. Uh, the there there are groups around the country that that's predominantly their strategy, but uh, there are very clearly other groups that teach supranormal oxygen delivery, which is a very wet strategy, if you will. Uh, requires a lot of blood transfusions, a lot of fluids and colloids. And, uh, and, and to some extent, pressors or, or inotropes to increase cardiac output. And so that's a very different strategy. And so we have two camps out there, and, uh, and the answer is we're not in, because in this particular population of patients, ARDS, no one had ever tested the wet versus dry question. Imagine that. You know, here we are 25 or 30 years into intensive care management, management of hemodynamics, and our most complicated patients are those in sepsis with ARDS, and we have never tested that particular question. So I'm glad if they knew it before and if they were practicing it before, but, but they could have been creating renal failure and not improving their patient's lung function. Right. The, uh, that was exactly the point I was going to make next, is that, as, as you teach, patients in general die of multi-organ failure rather than ARDS, and you don't want to be increasing the incidence of multi-organ failure by diuresing that and hypoperfusing vital organs, right? Exactly. So, the, so our question was, of course you don't want any extra fluid on board, but define extra. And, uh, and that's what we tried to accomplish with this study, and I think we, we were lucky enough to actually find a way to define what extra fluid means. It's the fluid that it takes to keep a decent urine output, the skin warm and perfused, the, the blood pressure above a mean of 60, and then at that point you can diurese safely. And so why don't we let you talk then about some of the results. I guess you could start out with, you mentioned that the conservative group uh, received um, less fluid then, and you can take, sort of take it from there. We were not a- 
aiming uh, at conventional uh, fluid net fluid balance levels, uh, but we ended up being right on target with several of our previous studies where there was no attempt to control fluids, uh, meaning that the, the liberal group, the liberal arm, uh, gained about eight kilograms over that first week in fluid, net fluid balance, versus placebo, the, uh, the, the conservative arm, which was pretty much near its baseline uh, net fluid balance by day eight. And so uh, what we were doing, again, not planning it, but it turned out to be that we were comparing what amounts to a, a new approach, conservative fluid management, against the community standard or, or perhaps the usual community fluid, uh, net fluid balance that was, that was observed when there's no control of the hemodynamic uh, parameters of the patient. Yeah, so we have a net difference then at the end of one week of about eight kilograms between the conservative and the liberal groups. That difference uh, of eight kilograms uh, between the two groups was sufficient to uh, shorten the uh, the uh, uh, ICU stay by more than two days, the ventilator days by two and a half days, uh, and uh, interestingly, again, uh, reduced the need for transfusion from twenty nine from thirty nine percent to twenty nine percent. So these are things that are are important to us, I think, as, as critical care practitioners, time on ventilator, time in the ICU, such uh, consumption of difficult to obtain resources like blood. Uh, those, are, those are important endpoints. We did not find a difference in mortality, which was our primary endpoint. Uh, the conservative arm had a mortality rate of 25.5% and the liberal arm 28.4%. So there was a trend towards an improved survival, which was reassuring that we hadn't caused any harm by this strategy. And it looks like improved some uh, morbidity effects. And as I mentioned with regard to the PA catheter uh, arm of the study, we have a cost-effectiveness analysis, which in this case will actually be able to show us just how cost-effective the conservative strategy is. And you said, uh, again, importantly, that there was no increase in the amount of shock or uh, renal dysfunction in the group that had the more conservative uh, approach with more diuretics and less fluid. Yes, that's exactly right. If we were to prospectively estimate what might be caused, what, what adverse events might be caused by the conservative strategy, we would have said increases in multi-organ failure and particular renal perfusion and perhaps a higher incidence of, of septic shock or shock. And we did not observe those findings in this trial. So we were very, very happy with the way the protocol actually carefully guided us uh, to get the patient dry and do it in a safe manner. Uh, a couple questions is, uh, were there any um, preferences or differences in terms of either diuretic infusions versus intermittent, or was that not really um, not really all that uh, important or critical? Well, we only used one strategy, uh, and, and that worked well for this study. Uh, my, my personal bias uh, in just general practice is to use, a, when, when it's important to accomplish something in the critical care unit with regard to diuresis, I like to use a drip. Okay. Not because it's physiologically more powerful, it's just much easier to manage uh, at the bedside. So I can start a Lasix drip and ask the nurse, please adjust this drip so that the output is greater than the intake by... 100 milliliters per hour. And that, that way I know when I come back and, uh, 12 hours later or the next morning for rounds or whatever that something will have happened and I won't have had to go back and give more boluses and, you know, and the like and delay things. One of the other questions I had was about the ventilator management strategy, and I just was looking at your table one in the, um, in the study, and it said, I believe I'm reading this right, that it's the baseline tidal volume was 7.4 
cc's per kilo in both groups and that was before a predicted body weight before they were entered into the trial that's correct so that's important right yes well what that says is you know when we first uh, when the ArtsNet first started conducting these studies those baseline tidal volumes look more like 10 to 12 and so now those baselines are in the 7.4 range, uh, as you just mentioned. And, of course, remember, uh, the, the ArgeNet protocol allows a tidal volume between 4 and 8 mils per kilogram, depending on the setting. Uh, so there are, there are reasons why someone might not be at 6 but instead be at 7, particularly if they were stacking breaths on the ventilator. They would be moved to 7 or even 8. So the 7.4 includes those types of manipulations. But it also, we screen intensive care units that we don't control, surgical intensive care units and the like, that we don't necessarily control. So we are not surprised to find that the ArgeNet protocol is not always adhered to 100% of the time. But and, and from what I understood, though, that the patients that were randomized into this trial were managed with the ArgeNet for the ventilatory approach, is that correct? Once they were randomized, once they were assigned consent, yes. Okay. And were there, uh, I would imagine the compliance, once they were in the trial, was, was high, I guess? Oh, yes, yes. Their, their uh, compliance was virtually 100% on the tidal volume uh, once they're enrolled in the study. But before the, those numbers in Table 1 are before our interventions. Right. And I guess to uh, to sort of uh, so conclude, again, just to sort of the big picture is that this kind of approach appears to be safe. It appears to improve physiologic variables. It doesn't appear to have a particular downside. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, with Greg Martin's work, combining this with albumin, and I was wondering how you think this is going to fit in, and are there clinical trials looking at this kind of approach in addition to this or combined with this? Well, you know, uh, Greg Martin uh, trained here with me at Vanderbilt, and, and we did, uh, we now completed two, what I'd call phase two studies of using albumin to, uh, to enhance the diuresis in these patients. And the one, the one thing that we've been struck by in those phase two projects is that by using albumin, we really stabilize these patients, if you can define that as their blood pressure is more stable and their heart rate is slower. And uh, that gives me some reason to want to consider perhaps, going back and doing something like the, the fluid conservative arm of the FACT trial, but randomizing now to giving supplemental albumin or not. Because I, I firmly believe we could actually drive these patients out more rapidly and more effectively if we added albumin to the regimen. But I, I don't, I'm not espousing that for routine care right now, but I do think that'd be a good topic for a clinical trial. And importantly, that this trial showed that that that, it, that non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema can be safely diuresed off in in patients with with uh, with ARDS and ALI. That's right. And 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 interestingly, not only did we not see more renal failure in the conservative arm, we we saw a reduction in requirement for dialysis. Uh, now that's kind of interesting to think about. It, I don't have a good mechanism for why the kidney would be protected by a conservative strategy, unless you think just edematous kidneys don't work as well. That could be true. Uh, but what we really think happened here is that by using a fluid conservative strategy, fewer patients reached the threshold where the team said we need dialysis for the purposes of volume management. And so it, it wasn't that their kidneys were working better. It's just that we didn't put them in a condition where they needed the dialysis machine for volume management. I had one last question for you. Uh, in your own personal experience, uh, comparing ineffective circulation for with effective circulation in the group that got the CVP, w- were there any times that people were arguing whether it, this was effective or ineffective circulation for a particular patient since it appears to be sort of a clinical assessment? Well, that, that's an interesting point. We were, we were uh, very impressed early on 
that in those patients who had cardiac output measurements, that the uh, effectiveness of the circulation uh, by clinical exam, capillary refill, skin temperature, skin color, was very reliable in telling us that the patients had adequate flow, adequate cardiac output. So we gained confidence very early on that we could do that as from clinical exam. And there was an agreement, inter-observer agreement, et cetera? Yes, yes. That was, well, it was, it was very objective. I mean, we, we had specific criteria for how long it, you know, capillary refill less than three seconds. Uh, and then the skin temperature and skin color were more subjective. But usually it's, it's, it's black and white. It's not that they're shades of gray, you know? <laughs> well, no, that's great. That's a really important point because it's one of the major arguments left for the use of the PA catheter is I need that to determine if my patient has adequate um, cardiac index and output, which is one of the major things that you were using um, in, in the PA catheter part of this trial. That's right. And so uh, when a patient has good capillary refill, has warm skin, and has uh, a perfect good skin color, their cardiac output is high, normal, or high in 85 to 95% of cases. So it, it's, very, uh, it's, very, it's very reliable in that regard. Did you want to make any uh, sort of final comments, overall comments uh, regarding this trial for the, for the listeners? Sure. Um, we, we would have, of course, been uh, thrilled to have found a survival advantage for any of the arms of the study as designed. <clears throat> but even not finding those, one reassures us that our usual practices are, are within some reasonable range. But, uh, but it gives us, uh, one, uh, uh, evidence that we can, by, by fluid management, change the time on ventilator, which in the end has to make some difference for patients. Uh, and, it, and there was this trend towards improved survival, so we will always suspect that uh, had we done a much larger trial, we would have found that to be a significant trend, although no one knows that for sure. And, uh, and lastly, it just gives us confidence to continue looking at these uh, process of care questions uh, because these results show how important they are. They're not just trivial sideline issues. They're our mainstream concerns. We've been speaking today, uh, again on the podcast, with Dr. Gordon Bernard from Vanderbilt University discussing the recently published FACT trial by the ARDSnet, and he's been helping us make some sense out of this very important landmark study. Thank you again, Dr. Bernard, for joining us today. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, June twentieth, two 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For more information about the Society, please visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.